0: Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright. And
1: I'm Patria Fossil, guest co-host.
0: Yes, Patria, thank you so much for joining us. You've heard Patria on a number of operas already. I'm having so much fun. It is operas for
1: everyone. It is a lot of fun. Learning so much.
0: Well, today's opera is Orfeo ed Euridice, and that is my best effort at Italian. I don't speak Italian, but we may just call them Orpheus and Eurydice.
1: Yes, people will recognize those names.
0: Yes, and um, or we might flip flip back and forth. No telling. So, Orpheus and Eurydice, they are a couple very famous.
1: It's based on a Greek myth, which of which there are several versions. Orpheus, the thing that's most important to know about him is he was a beautiful musician. He could charm people and rocks and trees and animals, which is important in the basic myth. And he falls in love with a beautiful woman, Eurydice. Orpheo, by the way, one version is that he is one of the sons of Apollo. He's, he's a mortal, but has a divine father, Apollo. And his mother was probably Calliope, who is a nymph and sort of a, a, muse. a, a muse, a patron of poetry. So, and another version has him being
0: the son of a the mother, his mother being a muse and his father being a Thracian prince.
1: Yes, I saw that one too. But I think either way, Apollo gave him a lyre and it turned out to be incredibly talented musically. Right.
0: Apollo being the god of music. Yes. Often the lyre is a symbol for Apollo. Yes, that's right. And he's considered the most exquisitely gifted of the non gods. In terms of music.
1: There may have been, in some of the myths, may have been some jealousy later on, but he marries Eurydice, and they're madly in love, and there are a couple of versions of what happened to her, but one way or another, she got bitten by a snake, a poisonous snake, and died immediately. And he was absolutely heartbroken and inconsolable. And in the myths, he decided on his own to go down to Hades to try and demand that the gods give her back. Yes and is so musically talented that he is able to charm the dog that guards the gates the of hell. three-headed. Three-headed, six-somethinged, whatever. And also the the ferryman who takes people across the river Styx, and he, he charmed them both, and they let him go into Hades, which would be very unusual. He finds his way all the way to the king, Hades, whose wife is Persephone, who's only there in the winter because in the summer she's out doing her spring gardening Persephone things. And so he charms them both and says to Hades how much he misses his wife and how he loves her so much and how, what would it be like, he tries to help Hades imagine this loss if Persephone was gone all the time and she never came back. Because right now when you miss her, you know she's coming back at the change of the seasons. And he moves Hades and also Persephone. So they agree to let him take Eurydice back up to the earth. But there's one condition. He cannot look at her or talk to her. And they go on their way, and he knows she's right behind him. So he keeps going forward, across the river Styx, up out of Hades, and he can feel her right behind her. And then she... Okay,
0: stop, stop, stop. I know that we read ahead in operas, but we're going to just leave it there and let a little bit of the drama build before we get to the end of the stories. Those of you who've done your Greek mythology probably know how this ends, but maybe you don't know how the opera ends. The opera
1: does not. The opera actually has... (laughs)
0: we're gonna we're gonna let it be a surprise okay we're
1: gonna let it be a surprise
0: but this opera opens with the lamentations of poor bereft orpheus eurydice we don't even see her in the beginning and we're going to listen to Orpheus's lamentations very briefly. Longtime listeners of Opera for Everyone will know occasionally a role representing a man is played by a woman or a voice that sounds like a woman's. And so we need to prepare you for Orpheus lamenting. It's going to be the voice of a mezzo soprano because this was a role originally written for Castrato.
1: And we can talk about them later.
0: Yeah, let's do that. So let's hear this song of lamentation by Orpheus, who, by the way, is sung by the great Marilyn Horn. She is our mezzo Orpheus. He is lamenting the death of his wife by her tomb. Thus I call upon my love. Chiamo il mio bencozi. to Opera for Everyone here on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson Wyoming. Today's opera Orpheus and Eurydice by Christoph Willibald Gluck. Gluck, it's a good German name. Gluck was born in Germany but this opera in fact premiered in Vienna where he was working at the court of the Habsburgs in 1762. A quick note, there's also a French version of this opera, 1774, because he had moved to the court of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette.
1: And actually the Habsburg Empress was Maria Theresa and she was the mother of Marie Antoinette so Maria Antoinette as a child would have known his work in Vienna don't you think?
0: Oh certainly and those the upper echelons of royal society in Europe at this point everybody's intertwined with yeah, everybody else related in all the royal families absolutely because you know royal has to marry royal yes I, I think it's worth mentioning for a moment that Orpheus and Eurydice but mostly focusing on Orpheus quite a popular theme or topic for operas. Opera, I this is this I'm going to do. History of opera condensed right now. Opera as we know it is believed to have been invented in Florence approximately 1600 first operas written. And it's a very conscious effort by this group of Florentine intellectuals, the Camerata, and they decide they want to revive the tradition of Greek drama with music because some of the Greek dramas survive to us and they're much loved and read in high schools and colleges, things like Oedipus and all the different stories, Electra, which also oftentimes become the topics for dramas and operas. But this group of, of intellectuals in the Camerata in the late 16th century, the late 1500s, and moving on past the turn of the century into the 17th century, they wanted to revive this. They want, it's part of this whole Renaissance fever that you go back to the classics, you go back to the Greeks because the Greeks knew so much. And they try to figure out how music and words can fit together. And that's, that's how opera, modern opera gets born, which is a fascinating thing. And the earliest surviving opera is on Orpheus and Eurydice story, and what's considered to be the oldest successful opera by Monteverdi is Orfeo. Aha. Uh-huh. And that is that is still occasionally performed. It's it's a known opera. In fact, that's one of the earlier operas, very early on an opera for everyone. Keeley did that with Grant. Aha. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I think there's just a little, it's, it's kind of appropriate in a way. There's just like a little historical fragment of Orfeo, but it's... It's the same topic, and and Orpheus is a topic for opera lovers, opera aficionados, because he is this ultimate musician, and he is good with his instrument, with his words, and with his actions, and that's, in a nutshell, that's opera, I think. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's just meta, you could say, <laughs> or it's just fun that here is this character from Greek mythology who becomes the subject of of all this great art that's produced because of the power of music and he's someone who embodies that power of music as you were describing in the telling of the myth.
1: Yes, and also it's such a human story of loss and grief.
0: That's why the emotions get us. That's why we care.
1: Right. Well, in addition to hearing
0: this lamentation from Orpheus. Just a little bit before that we heard some of the chorus. There are only three named characters in this opera. There's Orpheus, Eurydice and Amour. Amour. Love. Or Cupid. Or we Cupid. Would, we would call it Cupid. And that's it. That's it for the named characters. And by the way, for anyone keeping track, all of those roles are sung by females these days.
1: Yes, yeah, so Orpheus, as you said, mezzo-soprano, and the other two sopranos.
0: Exactly. And that doesn't mean that's all the voices that are on stage. We have a large chorus, ideally a large chorus. We have a chorus that plays a very important role, similar to a Greek chorus. So just like in the Greek chorus, they're the, the people who are around. And in this first act, that means that they are the shepherds and also the nymphs who surround and bear witness to Orpheus's grieving. So his grieving has not gone
1: unheard. Suddenly Cupid appears. Indeed. Known as amor or love. And this is what she says. The God of love will help the bereaved husband. Jove permits you of his mercy to cross Leith's slothful waves be gone. Go seek Eurydice in the dismal realms.
0: So interesting, in contrast to the, the telling of the myth that you yes. presented right in the beginning, it is Jove or Jupiter or Zeus, the king of the gods, who has been touched and who is granting permission for him to enter the underworld and cross the river. He doesn't have to charm the ferryman or the dog, he is granted access by the king of the yes. gods. Yes, so it's,
1: it's a, major, a major difference from the myth. Yeah. So if the sweet sound of your lyre can find its way to heaven, Orpheus, the wrath of the gods will be appeased and her dear shade restored at your first sigh. And Orpheus, of course, is ecstatic that he may see her again.
0: Yeah, gone from hopeless to hopeful.
1: Yes, but there's a catch. There's always a catch.
0: What's the catch?
1: The catch is he cannot look at her. Amora says, until you are clear of that cavernous place, you're forbidden to look upon your wife unless you wish to lose her again forever. Withhold your glances, restrain your words. Remember how short are the moments you still have to suffer. But this, of course, turns out to be a lot more difficult than you would think. Well,
0: and he knows it's going to be difficult because he he's going to sing about the challenge that that's going. He's so excited because he thought his life was over and he was considering killing himself to be with her. Yes. And he's going to take this chance that's been offered to him. And it's interesting because I feel like it's a very big change from the typical retelling of the myth, that he's not the change agent, (laughs) Uh that he's not the one who initiates the, I'm going to go down to the underworld and get my wife, which is how it's typically told. It's certainly in the the classic telling, Mm -hmm. Virgil and Ovid, he decides he's going to make the underworld bow to his will. Here, it's merely the power of his music and his words lamenting that touched Jove's heart, that caused Cupid to come down and say there's there's another way.
1: Yes, so it, you're right, it does change the whole tone and makes him even more sympathetic, I think, as a character. Well,
0: yeah, we could have a conversation about that, but we probably <laughs> won't right now. I'm not sure about that, but <laughs> okay <laughs> he's yeah, he's I mean, he's received pity from the gods, mm-hmm. and the gods are giving him an opportunity. And the one
1: thing that I think comes through in both the myth and the opera yes. is how much he loves her and how Absolutely. much she loves him. Yep. So I think that's really important. Yeah, the The depth of his
0: grief is so great that it causes a change in her status, yes. potentially. But but there's that catch. So next, let's listen to Cupid delivering this very welcome message. Save
2: all Jesus
0: Welcome back to Opera for Everyone. You're listening to Gluck's Orfeo ed Herodine. I Can't speak Italian. <laughs> You're listening to Gluck's Orpheus and Eurydice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so we've just heard from Cupid, and Orpheus is beside himself with joy and a little bit of trepidation. We're going to hear from him in two pieces that will conclude the first act but there's there's no getting up out of your seats this is a relatively short opera there's no intermission so Orpheus what are the thoughts swirling through Orpheus's head at this
1: point well he's so ecstatic as you said he's worried he says what what did he say Cupid can I believe my ears Eurydice will live then she'll stand before my eyes and after all my sufferings at that moment in that tumult of affection must I not look at her, not press her to my breast? Unhappy wife, whatever will she say?
0: Oh, what will she say? Hmm. So let's, listen
1: to, let's listen to the music. Actually, before we do that, I think this
0: is a good time just to mention that one of the things that Gluck is doing here is new. Gluck is known as a, a reformer within the opera world. In fact, I read one commentary that said this particular opera... Orpheus and Eurydice was like an earthquake in the opera world because he consciously broke with the conventions of the time. We won't go into all of the details, but following that period of early development of this concept of marrying the words and music to produce drama outside of a a church setting where it's, it's kind of a different method, but this drama that the camarada wanted to establish harking back to so many of the good things that the Greeks had done in their cultural achievements. There's a long period of development in the 17th century. And by the beginning of the 18th century, early 18th century, there's this fellow Metastasio who develops essentially formulas. He develops, and it's very, it's very clearly articulated because in the very earliest opera, it was essentially all recitative. It was all just descriptions of the the characters were just talking dialogue style in their singing. Because we've talked before on Opera for Everyone, the difference between arias and recitatives, where recitatives are where the plot moves forward and arias are where characters look into their feelings, express their feelings, their thoughts about what's going on. And Metastasio formulated that and he didn't just formulate it for the purpose of telling stories. He also formulated it for the purpose of pleasing his singers. Because
1: Ah, interesting, each of the singers, particularly
0: the big roles, had an expectation of a certain number of arias and this aria here and that aria there. And so there was a pattern of who was going to get to sing when, and during the arias, there's great emoting, and the arias even developed into an expectation of this, what's known as a decapo capo aria, where it's ABA, I won't spend too much time talking about it, but there's there's a, a, a phrase or a statement, and then there's a second, that's that's A, there's a second phrase or a statement, a little more developed musically, and then the third goes back to A, and they literally repeat the same words, but it's much embellished. It's embellished with the accompaniment, but even more significantly for the singers, it's embellished probably with quite a lot of improvisation. And that would be how one particular singer could show off their skills and maybe even try to show up the other singers.
1: So it reminds me a little bit of the Bel Canto period.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It it is similar like that, that these singers were kind of dictating to the composers what they required, but Metastasio at least sort of organized this and made the the aria a major way of expressing feeling and emotion. And I've even read that part of what's going on here, (laughs) this is gonna get complicated. Part of what is going on here is that instrumental music is also evolving during the 17th century and into the 18th century in such a way that composers are learning how to orchestrate a great number of musicians at the same time to create drama and emotion just with the instrumentation that words are not required singing is not required but if you put the two together it's a powerhouse of expression
1: interesting interesting
0: yeah so that's what precedes gluck immediately and Gluck's like okay i guess some of that's good but we've we've got to rein it in people because the singers are taking over it's too much it's too complicated there's just too much going on and in fact Gluck who composed a great many operas even though we don't hear many of them these days he's wildly influential because he's influential on Salieri we talked about Gluck a little bit when we did the Salieri opera a while back but he's also influential with Mozart both of whom by the way were in Vienna at the time when Gluck is this great master or has or was this great greatly revered master because Vienna was his his home base for most of his career.
1: So this next piece we're going to hear how, how does that reflect what you've just described? Orfeo is talking about his fear and his excitement about seeing his dead wife. How, how is his the style of? Well he's not going to do a De Capo aria. Okay.
0: So he's not going to repeat the first part. Secondly, you got you to gotta just pay attention and follow along. And you're going to hear the music along with Orpheus' singing, expressing his feeling. And the, the other thing is, we talked about this being a short opera. On balance, Gluck's operas were half the length of a typical Baroque opera. Oh, that's interesting. So immediately. Mm-hmm. Because Gluck is, is the beginning of what's known as the classical era in opera. And that's after this Baroque period. And when we've done our Handel operas, those are Baroque operas.
1: So is it a good time to talk about the history of the Castrati or? Do we want to just let's, hear this let's, music? Let's, well,
0: <laughs> not that I keep putting it off. Let's listen to the final songs from Act One where Orpheus is talking about his excitement, but also sharing his trepidation at keeping to the conditions. And we'll get to the
2: castrati. Okay. (laughs)
0: back to Opera for Everyone. Well this is Christoph Willibald Gluck's Orpheus and Eurydice and wow
1: that was some emoting there by Orpheus. Amazing but I was struck I know this is supposed to be a mezzo role but I was struck by how many high notes uh, Marilyn Horne has. She got down low but it's interesting. Yeah a mezzo can have quite a range. It's a demanding role and
0: you want it to be acted well too. And that's what the best mezzos can do in this role as well. So we keep talking about her being a mezzo and we keep putting off talking about the castrati. Let's do just a brief reminder to our listeners about the castrati.
1: Okay. I've done it a few times. It's, it's your my turn. my turn. The castrati. It sounds like castrated. That's what it is. In the 16th century, the Catholic Church stopped allowing women to perform in public. So there were already a huge number of opera fans and a lot of roles written for sopranos. Uh, So they had to come up with some other solutions. And one solution was to take young boys who were had not reached puberty and surgically alter them so that their voices would not change they they some of the roles were originally played by young boys but then as they got older yeah. their voices changed so they realized they could and i guess there is history in other countries and other places of this so it was known that this was an effect of doing this kind of surgery of course one statistic i read was that it's estimated that only 80% of them survived and
0: surgery was always a dicey affair in There those was no days.
1: anesthesia. And infection, also and you
0: don't know what kind of singer right this boy is going to become as a man.
1: And some of them were successful.
0: In- they were the rock stars, they were the tippy top. I mean they were they were more important than any other singer on the stage.
1: And apparently they were also sex symbols and they were desired by both men and women it's it's a very odd it's
0: it's fascinating but it's also there's an economic element to it as well because if you were successful as a singer as a castrato for families that wanted something better for their children they they decided to take the risk because it was only a small handful percentage tiny who become successful singers on the stage or even in the churches because the castrati were used you know technically the the catholic church frowned on it but they kind of turned a blind eye to it yes because if you don't have the high voices you don't get the richness of of, and fullness of of sound even in choral music
1: apparently the ones who were good i mean they had their their bodies changed they had long limbs but they had tremendous lung power so that the sound that came from them was really beautiful and one the last castrati lived until the 20th century until like 1922 and apparently there are some recordings of him but it was when he was past his prime so we don't really have any recorded records no of just them just verbal descriptions descriptions yes so this the castrato who played the role of Orfeo in this first production was named Gaetano Guadagni and apparently he was quite a good actor as well and he also went to London and apparently took some acting lessons with a very good Shakespearean actor of the day named David Garrick and he also knew Handel and sang in Handel's Messiah and Handel rewrote some of the songs or some of the parts of that so that he could sing in it.
0: Yeah it's a fascinating phenomenon and today it's more often than not it's played by uh, these roles are played by mezzo-sopranos but we also have countertenors. Countertenors? And they sing very skillfully in a in a falsetto voice, mm-hmm. one of the operas we did earlier that had one of these roles, a Handel opera, used a countertenor,
1: and that can be very beautiful too. I've I've heard Messiah, I've heard a countertenor in one of the roles that's also played by a mezzo in the Messiah. So
0: right, and you can even have soprano castrati, so it's not always mezzo. Yes, so it's 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 an interesting <laughs> interesting story. Well, let's launch into the music. So this music that begins the second act, we don't have our named characters but we have a whole bunch of furies on the stage and you have choral singing and you have the furies dancing. You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. I'm your host, Pat Wright, joined today by special guest co-host Patria Fossil. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. Today's opera is Orfeo ed Erodice, <laughs> as I trip over my Italian. Orpheus and Eurydice, that famous couple who are doomed in mythology. But hang on, you might get a happy ending if you if you stay with us for this particular opera by Christoph Willibald Gluck. I would like to mention besides Marilyn Horne in the role of Orfeo, we have Pilar Lorengar in the role of Eurydice, we have Helen Donath playing Amor or Cupid and great many in the chorus and this was a production of the Royal Opera House Covent Garden and directed by Sergei Solti. recorded in 1969. And we could also mention Raniero de Calzabigi is the librettist for this. And the libretto is exquisite, I think,
1: don't you? Yes, it's it's a beautiful story. So we have just seen
0: a glimpse of Hades as we ended with the Furies singing and dancing when we ended part one of our show. And very soon, we're going to see the appearance of Orpheus in the underworld.
1: So we're gonna see Orpheus
0: responding to the Furies when he arrives.
1: So Orpheus is brave. He says, oh, be pacified, Furies, and the Furies say no. So he begs them for pity. Pity at least my cruel suffering. They say no, he says, be pacified. And this is repeated for a while. Finally, they say a little softened, unhappy youth. What do you want? What do you hope for? Nought dwells within these grim and dreadful portals save mourning and groaning. What do you want, unhappy youth? What? Angry shades, like you, I too suffer a thousand pangs. I carry my own hell within me. I feel it in my inmost heart. Oh, but an unaccustomed gentle sentiment comes sweetly to arrest our implacable fury. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I almost feel like we should be angrier when we talk about implacable fury
1: oh Orpheus said you'd be less unkind to my tears and my grief if for one single instant you had felt what it is to die of love
0: yes we've heard him emoting about his sad sad loss of his beloved wife and he's braved the furies in hell to go see if he can rescue her
1: and he doesn't give up easily. I mean, they're, they're not... So he, he sort of wins them over. And I think in the myth, it was the playing of the lute, the beautiful... Right. He does ultimately play his lute for these Furies as well to calm them.
0: And it works. Well, they are calmed. The power of music. And now that you know what he's saying, let's listen to Orpheus sing that. Back to Opera for Everyone and Orpheus and Eurydice. Well, it's not easy to go to the underworld and face the furies and all the torments that they represent and try to inflict on you, but Orpheus is on a mission.
1: He's on a mission to
0: find his wife. Yeah, he's been told by Cupid he can do it if he just meets one little condition, not to look at her until he's let her out of the underworld. In the meantime, he's facing these furies, and he pacifies them somewhat. But then there's, there's a beautiful piece of music where we still see the furies in hell living the way furies live, and they do it through
1: dance. A lot of dance in this opera.
0: There's quite a bit of dance in this opera. It's another form of expression. But I, th- I think it's interesting because he also, I think we mentioned in the beginning, he did a version for France where he even expanded some of these dance scenes for the French audience. Because as we've mentioned before on Opera for Everyone, dance in French opera is a huge part, a much bigger part than it is in a lot of other national traditions for opera.
1: It's so interesting how, I know he made several rewrites of this. Yes. And it's all, and he's not the only, only one, but they were all very cognizant of creating something that their audiences would like, so they had to modify their works of art for their audience.
0: Right, the one that premieres in Vienna is quite a different opera, even same composer, same librettist, but it's quite a different opera from the one that premieres in Paris.
1: Yeah, it's later in Paris too, so... so Yes. Fashions may have changed also. So how does dance fit in with this reform of opera?
0: that's something i wish i could tell you about i mean he is trying to, i mean the underlying goal of his reform is to tell the story clearly and powerfully through music and not to get distracted with the extraneous stuff so the so the dance is meant to help tell the story not necessarily propelling the story forward but to pull you into the emotion mm-hmm. of what's going on and so if you see the furies dancing in this almost terrifying, not quite human way, it does make you feel more like you've gone to the underworld, I think, than if you just say, yep, we're in the underworld now.
1: So do you think this move away from some of the fancy pyrotechnic-type singing, which I, I think audiences like that at one point in time and then later in another point in time, but perhaps that's a little, disconnects you a little bit from the feelings, whereas... Well, right.
0: And in, in, in some of these operasaria pieces, when someone did a particularly good job with one of their arias, the audience would go crazy, just wild, and it was not at all uncommon for the singer. To break character, Mm -hmm. acknowledge the audience, even walk down to the front of the stage and take a bow in the middle of the story. So that
1: totally breaks the moment, the mood or whatever. So I I see what you're saying about how the dance and and the simpler singing allows the audiences to get closer to the emotion.
0: Right, I I think it's all there to to get the emotion through, because that's part of what's going on with these arias. And after all, as we mentioned before, Orpheus is this embodiment of the power of music.
1: Yes, that too.
0: And so he's he's calming the Furies, but he is still in the underworld. And then he makes a transition. Next, he goes to the Elysian Fields.
1: Remind me exactly what the Elysian Fields are.
0: That's where the great and the good, the heroes are found. These are not the ones writhing in torment. Gotcha. These are the ones who have succeeded for their afterlife. And depictions can use of this opera can use color, can use movement, and it's all in the music. I mean, that's part of what Gluck is doing. He's, he's letting the music speak and convey sort of the fury and the, and the torment of the first step. And then when he gets to the Elysian Fields, it's going to be much more mellow, much oh. calmer, and 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 the part of the show where where we first see the Elysian Fields is a bit slow. It's calm. It's peaceful. Do you want to give Let's a listen? Let's listen. Definitely. repose. Are you still awake, everyone? (laughs) (laughs) It does seem like it could put you to sleep, doesn't it? It's beautiful, though. It's it's lovely and lilting. And we first get to meet Eurydice here. She is one of these blessed spirits who exist in the Elysian Fields. And it's interesting because two versions of this that I've seen have omitted Eurydice. She's not present until she's called back to life. But in the original libretto, she she is here and happily on the CD that we have, she will sing about her time there in the Elysian Fields, talking about how agreeable it is, what a refuge, a land of sweet repose.
1: That's good because later when we have some confusion, it adds credibility to why she wouldn't have minded staying there or might not have minded staying there. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll
0: get to that confusion soon. Let's hear let's hear a little bit from Eurydice. Eurydice in Orfeo a Eurydice. Eurydice sounds very peaceful there, I think, mm-hmm. and you can also hear all the other inhabitants, the blessed spirits of the Elysian Fields. After this introduction for us, they retire and Orpheus comes onto the
1: scene. Yes, it just says he approaches wonderingly, how pure the sky, how bright the sun, Oh, what a wondrous new light is this. With what sweet, seductive sounds the pretty winged songsters make this valley ring. He's, he's really
0: very captivated
1: by how beautiful
0: this all is because he's just had to deal with those the furies. furies a huge contrast.
1: Yeah, huge absolutely. contrast.
0: And so, shall we listen to him? Sing some of this, or do you want to tell us a little bit how
1: the blessed spirits
0: respond?
1: The blessed spirits say, "Come to the kingdom of rest, the great hero, tender husband, rare phenomenon in any age, the what god of guy, <laughs> <laughs> the god of love gives you back Eurydice. She now arises and puts on again her former beauty." All right, step one.
0: happy day for Orpheus. They've just returned his loving bride to him. He's overjoyed. There he is, and she is given to him. We don't hear from her yet until the next act, which is act three of our three-act opera. No intermission, though. And they're in a mountainous gorge, the libretto tells us, and Orpheus must remember his condition. He cannot look at her cannot look at her but he's leading her up out of the underworld through the dark cavernous gorge and their first emotion she wants
1: to hug him to be embraced he is holding her hand to guide her because it is a bit challenging terrain. Yeah. And he's saying, Come on, we have to go now we have to keep moving. And he's trying to move her forward to get her out of danger to say, and you're just thinking, I have a bad feeling about this. I know. <laughs> and she's like, Well, I love you. I, I want to be with you. Why aren't you answering me? Why aren't you looking at me? And he's limiting his conversation as was the condition. And it's such a beautiful moving and touching scene heartbreaking yeah heartbreaking achingly beautiful so much love expressed and he's sings sort of to himself about the torment of not being able to look at her and she becomes she misunderstands she thinks he doesn't really care for her anymore and this is why earlier we saw that she found the elysian fields quite pleasant so she's going why am i going through this terrible terrain with this man who seems very cold He doesn't seem like my husband
0: yeah that love I remembered where is that love we used to just gaze into each other's eyes and I don't know about you it's one of these love stories like Romeo and Juliet we just think if only this little thing were different we could change it all if she would just say this or if he would just do that I could I could have I could have led them through this. It
1: would have been okay. Right. Right. But then you wouldn't have the dramatic tension that oh, we know, in fact definitely have. So, <laughs> this goes on. More and more emotion. He's becoming more desperate to get her through this danger. She's becoming more desperate to have him look at her, embrace her.
0: And express his love the way she remembers. Yes, yes.
1: and in the myth, she falls down and that's what triggers him to turn around and look at her. And in this opera, and the libretto, it's just, he's just worn down by because she is just relentless
0: I mean it is shocking to me how relentless they made her they really make her the bad guy here I think because she's just go that
1: far oh I don't know I don't know well she she brings upon herself a tragic end. In
0: this telling, she's just haranguing him.
1: Yes. In fact, the
0: version of the myth that I know, she could trip and fall. I I also know the one where he's getting there, he's doing it. It's tough and she's following. Of course, they're not singing to each other because it's not an opera in the myth. (laughs) Opera things always have to change because we've got to be able to sing, but (laughs) they're walking out and she's behind him but he's wondering is she following me is she following me and he's just like gotta keep going gotta keep going get to the light at the end of the tunnel as it were and he sees and he actually steps out into the world and he's feeling relieved and he turns around to greet her joyously but she has not yet emerged from the tunnel she's just she's just there she's just right at the edge but not quite out and because he's looked at her she's hold back in.
2: <laughs>
1: listening to Opera for Everyone 89.1 KHOL in Jackson Wyoming with host Pat Wright and I'm Patria Fossil guest host today.
0: We've just heard beautiful music from both Orpheus and Eurydice and you think yeah this is a couple that was meant to be together. Yes. But there's a little bit of a rocky patch here. She's accusing him of terrible neglect.
1: Yes well I think we set this up before, too, and just saying that, you know, the rocky terrain, and he can't look at her, and she's feeling like, what's she she leaving the Elysian Fields for? (laughs) Why did I even bother?
0: (laughs) And he's thinking, I came and descended into hell for you my
1: love. Trust me just trust me. I don't think he feels resentment. I think he feels real empathy towards her. Oh no it's he's just he's I'm sorry I was being a little cheeky.
0: (laughs) He's he's just broken up about it. It's yeah paining him that his actions are causing her pain.
1: Yes and that it's so misunderstood and she She's just she's in real bad shape over this where she
0: says, "Are you forsaking me? Won't you even console me? How can you do this to
1: me?" Who knew this test was going to be so hard? It sounded easy. Well, back in the first act.
0: Hey, he will turn and say, "I can't I can't do it anymore. I just can't do it. I'm I'm causing her too much pain."
1: Yes, and then he looks and she dies. And yeah, she has a moment to say what's
0: happening to me. It breaks your heart. It's that she doesn't get a whole lot out, but like I feel very
1: strange. And she realizes it's over. And there is her lifeless body. So then we have Orfeo grieving her all over again, as in the beginning of the opera. Yeah, let's listen to that.
0: Listening to Opera for Everyone with Orpheus and Eurydice, and that was Orpheus, and the final line there is that he intends to die with her, and he's gonna take his own life, and he's just about to do it when in comes Amor, Deus Ex Machina. The Literally gods coming
1: down from in the couple of productions we've looked at. Literally coming down well, from the Well, uh, I mean, it is. It is the gods the intervening ceiling.
0: to change things, to save the day. And that's exactly what happens. Cupid
1: shows up here, and Cupid's going to save the day. He's so impressed with Orfeo's love for Eurydice and his willingness to die and stay in the underworld with her that he says, no, you've proven your love. I'm going to bring her back to life again. So that's the happy ending, unlike the myth. <laughs> unlike the myth, yes. The myth is quite sad. It is. The way that Orfeo is killed. There are there are many different versions of it, but one of them has him being sort of torn apart and his head and his singing and his his lyre are kind of kept around for the entertainment of the world, I guess. But gruesome, yes. Yeah. And then there were some gods' jealousy and things like that in some of the versions. But the main point is that for this lovely opera Yeah. It's a happy ending.
0: It's a profoundly happy ending. Remember, I mentioned Monteverdi earlier that Mm -hmm. he had done a a take on this story. He actually had two endings. Oh. Uh, The one that's most commonly used has Apollo descending to comfort him and say, don't worry. You can come up into the sky, and you can see her likeness among the stars. And he accepts the god's invitation. And another one has him being killed. Ah, interesting. But when he's killed, of course, he joins her in the underworld, right? Because of his pure love. He will be in the Elysian fields as well. But this story does not does not even reunite them in death. This story gives a a truly happy ending because after all, this was a play presented at a festival for the court, and it was the convention, the style, and expectations no matter how dramatic and tragic and heart-rending the various scenes are we're all going to have a happy ending and we're all going to sing together
1: i love it because as we know in the current opera repertoire there are many unhappy endings with Absolutely. a lot of people dying right so even even a story like this that exists
0: with a not so happy ending it's it's going to get shifted because that's that's what we want i loved it <laughs> I'm not sure (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean the
1: music's beautiful, of course I'm not sure about the I don't know It's Uh, hard, as you were saying earlier It's hard to do a production of this That fits with Modern sensibilities Contemporary audiences That's true But there are a lot of opportunities for Dance and music And good acting And good singing
0: So in our final song as Eurydice has been restored to Orpheus and everyone is happy. They're back up on Earth. They're surrounded by the shepherds and the nymphs once more. But instead of being in mourning like the beginning of the play, they're all celebrating. And Cupid has a few lessons to impart. Cupid says, a single one of my delights makes up for a thousand woes. And he says, I can make any amount of suffering disappear. And that's exactly what is happening on stage. Cupid re-emphasizes the whole reason this was happening was because of the profound depth of the love that these two individuals had for each other. So he says, Orpheus, you've borne enough. I ask no greater proof of your constancy. You are reunited with your wife. And now for the big
1: finish. Eurydice says, jealousy consumes and devours, but afterwards fidelity restores and that suspicion which torments the heart turns to happiness at last. Yeah, she really hits that point about jealousy
0: and suspicion not being good. In other words, she's criticizing her own former behavior. Mhm. And tell us again where this was first presented. Well,
1: I was kind of wondering if there was some historical content. The Empress Maria Theresa's husband, she she was a very devout Catholic. And institute a lot of reforms as empress, a lot of education. Then they also had these morality courts where a lot of people were punished. But apparently her husband, she had 16 children, so they had a very Mm -hmm. loving marriage, I believe. But he also apparently... Or at least uh, a fruitful one. (laughs) Strayed as well. And he was the only one... Who was not brought to these morality courts. So I, I kind of wondered if there was a little bit of a, a message A little in, moralizing A little going moralizing on. in this. Because this this was performed for his name day. Right. So she was talking about the virtues of
0: husbands and wives. Yes. Loving so each I, other. I wonder um,
1: reminds me a little bit too of Wagner's ringside of Zeus's wife Fricka. Yes, the except, goddess of marriage.
0: Right. Ex- except Wagner was not trying to Please, a patron on this point.
1: (laughs) Maybe was talking about his own marriage, but we digress. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, that's part of what we do here. It's a happy ending, and
0: they get to live happily together on Earth. Yes. And Cupid, Cupid says, just lovers, be happy, go into the world, enjoy yourselves, have a good time, and we'll hear the chorus singing at that oh as it, we and it's not it's it's everybody everyone who has sung a note is on stage now singing perfect well thanks again for joining us for this episode of opera for everyone for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Pat Wright and I was joined today by guest co-host Patria Fossil. If you missed any of today's show, you can find this episode and many others on your favorite podcast app under Opera for Everyone. Opera for Everyone airs every Sunday morning from 9 to 11 Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL Jackson, Wyoming. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable because we believe opera is for everyone.